Welcome! Greetings, everyone! Today we have a special guest for today, the founding father of the periodic table we all come to know and love, Dimitri Mendel. No! I am Mendeleev, not the guy who played with peas. Okay then, Mendeleev. It's an honor seeing you in person. How did you become so great? You were considered the father of the periodic table, so how did you discover the table? Do enlighten us, please. When I first started, there were about 60 known elements. Most people just organized it by mass. But what I noticed were particular elements reacting with other elements. I theorized that they must have something in common. And when I put them into this table, I noticed that certain elements had similar characteristics. Mm-hmm. All right, very interesting. Weren't there other people trying to discover it at the same time? Yes, but they weren't as obsessed as I was in finding out why these elements had a periodic nature. My eureka moment was realizing that there were elements that were waiting to be discovered. So I just left a space for them in the periodic table. I was able to predict these characteristics for these unknown elements before anyone else. But enough about me. Let's talk about the table. Fascinating. Well, on to the structure of the table. How did you organize it? You will first notice the numbers on the top left-hand corner of each box increase as we go from left to right and from top to bottom. The number, this number is the atomic number. It refers to the number of protons in the nucleus. It is the defining characteristic of each element. <coughs> As the atomic number increases, the elements get heavier. You will also notice that the periods refer to the horizontal rows, while the groups with similar chemical properties are found in the vertical column. Okay then, could you go more in depth about these columns and their similarities? In the first column, under H for hydrogen, you will find the alkali metals. They are highly reactive in the pure state, which is why you will always find them as compounds in nature. If they are pure elements, they are stored in oil to prevent them from interacting with air and water. The next column are the alkaline earth metals. They are almost as reactive as alkaline metals and are also never found in a pure state in nature as well. The transition metals are the metals we are familiar with, such as gold, silver, iron. On the periodic table, you will find them next to the alkaline earth metals, but the inner transition metals, such as actinides and lanthanides, should be inserted before them. The inner transition elements are placed below the rest of the table in order to save space. The next big group we see are the basic metals, such as aluminum, tin, and lead. Then metalwoods such as silicon share properties with both metals and non-metals, and they serve as semiconductors. And our non-metals such as 
Carbon, oxygen, nitrogen are poor conductors of heat and electricity. <clears throat> the second to the last column are the halogens, which are highly reactive nonmetals, especially with the alkali metals and alkaline earth metals. And the final column is the noble gases, which are inert and do not react with anything. You mentioned the uh, alkali metals react very easily with halogens. You can never find them in the pure state, so could you give me an example? One of the most common alkali metals is sodium. And that is right, you almost never find it in a pure state. Where you will find it, however, is in an aqueous solution of sodium chloride, or table salt. In fact, our oceans are filled with it. The periodic table predicts the behavior of the sodium chloride when it is in solution. Sodium, or Na, since it is an alkali metal, loses its electron and becomes a positively charged cation. Meanwhile, chlorine, which is normally a gas in its pure elemental form, will gain the electron from sodium and become a negatively charged anion. Many alkali metals and halogens will interact in a similar fashion. How many elements are there? There are currently 118 elements of which 94 are naturally occurring. 80% are metal, which means they are good conductors of electricity and heat, which there are, and there are 13 gases. These are all poor conductors, and two liquids at standard temperature and pressure, or zero degrees Celsius and one atmosphere. Well then, what about the horizontal rows? What significance do they have? Each row refers to the number of electron shells of a given element. But it is the outermost shell that is most important. <coughs> the outermost shell, or valence shell, contains the number of electrons corresponding to the column of the element. For example, Alkali metals, such as the previously mentioned sodium, has only one electron in its valence shell. Alkaline earth metals have two electrons in its valence shell. <coughs> Boron has three, carbon four, nitrogen five, oxygen six, and halogens, such as fluorine and chlorine, have seven electrons. Halogens will easily take the electrons from the alkali metals to fill its shell. And this is why it has why it is very highly reactive. Whereas the noble gases such as neon have their valence shell already filled with eight electrons, which is why it does not interact with other elements. Then the next row starts the process over again with the next alkali metal. In fact, when it is finally discovered, element 119 would start a new row and is theorized to have similar properties like other alkali metals. 
So you're telling me that the alkali metals have one valence electron, alkali earth metals have two valence electrons, all the way up to halogens, which have seven, and noble gases have eight. So what effect does that have? So as we add more electrons, and we go to the right, its electronegativity increases. Also, ionization energy increases, which is the energy required to pull electrons away. However, it is atomic size decreases from left to right, which seems counterintuitive, but it makes perfect sense if you imagine the protons and electrons as the positive and negative poles of magnets. The more positive and negative poles you have, the stronger the attractive force between them, and therefore, the smaller atomic radius and atomic size. <laughs> Ionization energy is also related to atomic size, because when an electron is further away, you can pull it away more easily, especially with heavier metals, which tend to be radioactive, thus losing electrons. Since they, have more since they have several more electron shells and the protons in the nucleus has a very weak grip on the outermost valence electrons. Then what about those other numbers? The ones with the decimals? The numbers with the decimals are the atomic mass. It is the weighted average of all of its naturally occurring isotopes. And the atomic mass comes in handy to find out how much a given element or compound you need for a reaction. This comes in handy when dealing with moles and stoichiometry. If you want, I can demonstrate for you. Uh, that'll be another topic to discuss, thank you. But what I really want to know is what an isotope is. <clears throat> Do you remember when I mentioned the number of protons in a nucleus refers to its atomic number? Well, isotopes refer to versions of an element that have different numbers of neutrons in its nucleus. And they can be very useful. For example, the ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12 helps to determine the age of fossils and other old things. Hmm. Interesting. You know what I've been meaning to ask you? The weird symbols. How did you come up with the names for those? The majority of them have simple symbols that start with the first letter of the elements, such as C for carbon, O for oxygen, etc. But then there's AG for silver, and AU for gold, FE for iron, PB is lead. It's more difficult to remember them. Is there, any, is there an easier way to remember them? A lot of these names have Latin roots. For example, Argentum means silver, aurum means gold, plumum means lead, etc. <clears throat> you remember a few years ago there was a water crisis in Flint, Michigan? It was all about lead and water pipes. And as you know, plumbers normally deal with water pipes, <clears throat> since they used to be made out of lead. And because the people in the government didn't understand chemistry, the compounds they added to the water that flowed through the pipes exposed lead in the drinking water for the inhabitants of Flint, Michigan. I hope that helps you remember how 
PB, Pluma, stands for life. Oh, uh, I'll be sure to remember that from now on, thanks. Well, <coughs> that clears up a lot of things from here. One last question before we let you go. How do you feel about the changes done with your original periodic table? It didn't have a column for the noble gases, so... That because noble gases were are unreactive. I wasn't aware of them when I first published my periodic table of elements over a hundred years ago. <clears throat> However, my greatest accomplishment was realizing that they were still elements yet to be discovered or even created by man. But by knowing where it would appear on the periodic table, I could predict the characteristics of those elements. Well, I think that's a nice wrap-up to this whole interview. I'm sure we all learned something very new, especially if it's coming from the father of the periodic table himself, Mendeleev. Thank you for your time on this show. It's been a pleasure interviewing you, and I'll see you all next time. Have a good day and night. Goodbye. All right.